HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers, about the many things that young farmers care about. And today I'm joined by Mary and Noah from Montana. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Do you want to jump right in and describe your operation and your uh, life ways over there? Absolutely. Great. Um, yeah, thanks for having us on. We uh we appreciate it. We have gotten a lot out of uh, a lot of the work of Greenhorns, so we're happy to be involved. Um, we all, I'll briefly describe our our operation here. Um, we're starting up um, and also restarting after a move. Um, we have a 10-acre place that we are, as we say, turning into a farm in the Bitterroot Valley of Western Montana. So we're establishing vegetable crops, some perennial berry crops for a future U-Pick operation, hopefully soon, and include a diversity of animals in our growing plans and rotations as well, including laying hens, uh, some meat lambs, and new to us this year, and a big challenge, uh, turkeys. So, so I, I hear a lot some about... People call us- Second-year farmers. Some call us uh, kind of first-year farmers because we uh, we we worked on leased land last year and we basically moved our entire farm over the winter. So we're uh, basically starting our year one again. All over, and this time a little better. <laughs> we hope uh, a little better. So, <laughs> yeah. So so people talk a lot about the Bitterroot Valley and. Um, I wonder if you could just explain what's going on there and what attracted you to the area, what the kind of predominant land uses are, um, maybe a little history about the Bitterroot Valley. Why is it called the Bitterroot Valley? Maybe that's a good place to start. Um, yeah, that's a, a great place to start. Um, and with my background as a botanist, I, I love that, actually. Um, the Bitterroot Mountains are the mountain range that forms the west side of this valley. Um, it's a 
a north-south running valley in western Montana, um, kind of almost at the Idaho border, and the Bitterroot River flows through it. The name is actually from uh, the Montana state flower, the Bitterroot, which is a, a lovely little succulent um, plant with a bright pink flower that blooms early in the spring, and it, uh, it was actually a food staple of a lot of the native peoples as well. So this was, was an area in these mountains where an area where it, it grows um, prolifically. Our local celebration of Bitterroot Days is actually coming up in Hamilton, uh, the town that we're right outside of this weekend. So it's a, definitely a big local um, identifier and the the history of the area and the land, um, there's still a, quite a lot of agriculture in this valley, although there's also a lot of population growth over the last decade or more. Um, so uh, increasing amounts of, of subdivision and housing developments, um, but also mixed in with a lot of uh, agriculture with we have a number of great neighbors and folks who, in fact, have been mentors for us of other organic vegetable farms and diversified farms, as well as larger operations, um, especially cattle, cow-calf um, operations. A couple of small dairies still in production. That was historically a big um, industry or a big agricultural um, a process in this valley. It also, uh, for a while, was um, had a lot of orchards. There are, again, just a couple of, of apple orchards and fruit orchards remaining. Um, and with, with a growing population, though, there's also um, a growing interest in, in local food and supporting some agriculture. Our farm uh, is Sweet Root Farm, and we literally... Uh, look right right out to uh, uh, the Bitterroot Mountains. We're at about 3,300 feet, um, and the, eleva- the elevation of the mountains across from us run anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000 feet. Um, so it's a rugged area as well, although we live in a, in a valley. We have well under 200 growing days a year. Um, like 90. Yep. <laughs> frost-free days. 90 frost-free days. More so, or less. Yeah. Um, we liken the challenges of this mountain valley to uh, farmers in, in other mountain valleys um, across the country and across the world. So how did you come to choose Montana um, for your home? And, and how did you come to find farming as your, your practice? Mm. Um, well, the the first part of your question, Noah and I both went to graduate school in Missoula at the University of Montana, so that's how we we each ended up here, um, coming from different places. And um, I'll answer first for me, and then let let Noah tell his coming to farming story as well. Uh, I grew up on a more conventional grass and wheat. Um, a grass seed and wheat farm in Oregon. Um, so I, I came from a farming family, but uh, actually did not <laughs> initially intend to to pursue that. Um, I I instead uh, went into teaching and biology, and um, always maintained a large home garden and stayed involved with with food production in various ways. Um, but no, just a few years ago, when Noah and I started. Uh, working together and and working both with local food issues and with farmers in other areas, we really 
made a renewed effort to grow all of our own food. Uh, last year, I think, being the first year where we really accomplished that goal, um, we weren't super restrictive, uh, but we really didn't buy much <laughs> last year. Um, and in the, that process where we also did grow for some neighbors and, and things, not uh, at a farmer's market, but we made some sales to other folks as well, um, we really really wanted to continue and expand that. And a lot of our goals with this kind of farming really do have to do with the people who use that food in the end and ways that we can um, bring them together, help people understand the full process of where their food is coming from. So a lot of it is really for, for us about uh, community and, and education. So that brings a lot. That's, that's one piece of our other lives, as we say, our other backgrounds that we really bring to farming as well. Mm-hmm. I grew up uh, farming as, as well, uh, Severin, but my, my passion for food and farming and community um, really happened uh, when I moved to Asia. Um, uh, I did a, a Peace Corps followed by a Fulbright, um, followed by um, uh, about a five-year stint um, working for an organization, the Rainforest Alliance, as a global agricultural cop, um, auditing small farmers, um, small, mostly all smallholders, coffee, cacao, tea, and vanilla in, in Asia and Africa, and just um, and then training them, which is mostly listening, um, hearing their stories, documenting some of their ecological knowledge, and um, ultimately getting homesick. Um, for my own food and growing. After hearing the stories of small family farmers all over, um, one, one thing that I decided to do about it was to grow food and community myself. So that's, that's kind of how Mary and I got involved, and especially last year when we realized that we could grow most of our own food and then a handful of food for some neighbors on about a quarter of an acre um, we said, you know, let's scale up and let's really do this and let's see if we can't make it happen and practice what we preach and, um, and have our own farm. So um, um, everything kind of started from there. Wow. So you guys have done a lot of reading and working outside of the farm space, and now you're back. Um, could you talk a little bit about your experience of food sovereignty or your kind of understanding of that term or what are the politics or poetics that drive you um, forward and, and are in, or inform your, your kind of approach there? One of the reasons why we, we moved here to the Bitterroot Mountains is um, although there are some some food cooperatives um, and some ways people can get food. There's, you know, there's four uh, relatively inexpensive grocery stores, for uh, example. Um, what we heard from other farmers um, and other eaters and restaurant owners um, and, and even some of our neighbors is um, there's, there, there's some key um, missing connections in, in our food system. Um, essentially, um, um, you know, we met with a grocery store owner, for, for example, last week, and he was saying how challenging it is to get food from farmers. Um, he'd like to, but he orders from, you know, Cisco 
or one of the other large suppliers. So we moved here because we saw a gap to um, to basically be able to um, help continue to create, you know, basically uh, opportunities for local um, people to have local food. Um, so we see that as really, really important. Um, one quick story, as part of our off-farm work, and we're amazed about how many farmers these days have to have that second farm job. But as far as our, one piece of our off-farm work, it involves roasting coffee some, from, from, from some very interesting but challenged, marginalized communities. And uh, as part of this process, we can uh, we uh, you know and part of our kind of the education component of of what we do and what we feel so strongly about is our old postmaster um, in a small town of Oregon uh, uh, was drinking Folgers crystals, and once he learned um, not about the not only about the quality of the coffee that we roast, but the story of the farmers that we work with, for example, in Indonesia. Um, he realized that, you know, he should support something different and um, support us and the farmers we work with directly. So when we think about food sovereignty, we think about, we, we think a lot about access and closing the gaps and seeking out what those gaps are and being creative and just trying to create this greater community of eaters and to allow access to food. So it's not only about, you know, creating a farm stand, having farm events, all of those things. Some of them we do, some of them we're working towards, um, but it's, it's really kind of helping opening people's eyes and um, creating more opportunities for people to, to become local eaters and become part of this, actors in this food system. So what would you say, Mary? I think that, that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, a, a big part of it is getting that local food access convenient and beyond the Saturday morning farmer's market so that it's, um, you know, it's it's an easy and accessible part of people's lives as well. Absolutely. So let's let's go into this um, other career part because, um, you know, there there is an economic there is an economic doctrine which we live under of efficiency and cheap food, and I've just been learning now about TAFTA, which is a Free trade, um, free trade organization between Europe and the United States, and now there's and TTIP, um, which is Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, which is between Asia and the U.S. And so, I've been thinking a lot about the norms and expectations that we're operating under. And you know, just in the first seven years of NAFTA, uh, sorry, first seven years of WTO, apparently we lost 170,000 family farms. And we're flooded with agricultural imports, even though the promise was that we would be exporting. I feel like having worked in coffee, you guys are probably pretty um, well prepared to talk about imports and exports and the economics of starting a small farm in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say partly with the coffee, um, we might not be as as well prepared to discuss imports and exports as you might think, just by the sheer size of our operation. Um, For example, one way we import coffee is when we take volunteers or students to work with a a family of coffee farmers in Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, Yeah, the entire crop of green coffee beans that we have ever roasted from that source 
came home with us in excess baggage. Uh, everyone carried, I think it was 80 pounds of green coffee beans back with us. Uh, so we, you know, in our, our goal to really operate very directly with, with farmers and maximize the connection between those farmers and the, the end consumers, um, you know, we, we do often operate at a very small scale, but it's a great question because, of course, that what we can supply that way is, is very limited. Um, and so we, we do also uh, work with a couple of farmer groups uh, for the coffee that are, are basically just large enough to send um, one or two shipping containers a year to the U.S. And certainly those, those issues of, you know, a commodity like coffee that, of course, is not grown in Montana or anywhere in the U.S. outside of Hawaii but that all of us want, or at least a large number of people really want in the U.S., um, introduces some, some very interesting challenges, and actually in a way that's, I would say, different from crops that are grown in the U.S., where we you know, have to, to worry a little differently about um, those sources. As a kind of a, a story to illustrate that, we, we visited with um, a farmer, a great local farm that's been going strong for a few decades here in Victor, Montana, uh, Lifeline Produce, um, and they were mentioning having made a big bulk order through our closest sort of, um, not a co-op, but our the natural food store, the good food store in Missoula, and having been surprised when their 50-pound bag of black beans came, organic black beans, uh, to discover that they were grown in China. Um, and we're, we're fortunate that that store actually labels the origin of everything in their bulk section. It's very transparent. Um, but uh, a lot of people are not paying as close attention, obviously, as that and, and really assume that a lot of things are, are grown um, closer to home. And that's something we really need to, to think about, Severin, because, of course, we can grow black beans here in Montana as well as most growing zones uh, here in the States. And when we talk about you know, paying for our farm or starting a small farm, everyone says, great, you've got land. Mary and I never, ever wanted to own land, um, but it just as we made investments on our old place that we leased um, and wanted to grow, keep growing, and, and keep with that mission of growing food, it kind of became apparent that um, we needed our own land as our vision grew so we could make some, some more autonomous uh, decisions. But we thought for everyone thinks when you have land, you're home free. But as one of our good friends, Laura Garber of uh, Homestead um, Organics says, there's no small, there's no farm in the U.S. It doesn't matter if you're five acres or one acre or, or 50,000. There are 50,000 acre ranches in, in, in eastern Montana, for example, cow-calf and grass-fed beef, beef operations. And she says you can't do that if you have a big payment, if you have a land payment or a mortgage. Um, we came through our land in a kind of unique way. Um, we don't pay a bank, um, but we pay essentially an investor through an escrow company. But that, that's kind of just the first step. Um, our good friend um, just down the road, Randy, who runs Mill Creek Farm, he says, you know, I think on my 10-acre operation, after, after I get to that point where I've got my walk-in cooler and, and um, my, my next hoop house and my $100,000 of infrastructure, I'll be, st I'll be 
Pinehead is self-sufficient and stable, and he's just kind of a one-person, one-farmer operation. So we continue to be kind of amazed and staggered at what small farmers need, and we continue to struggle about how to pay for that. Um, so I'm sitting here in the barn um, of seaweed drying of an island in Maine and hearing about um, someone who's running for Cong- uh, Senate over here wanting to export Maine products to China. So the craziness mm-hmm. flows in both directions. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the land. This, I mean, if, you, if you're willing to, I'd love to talk a little bit about your land. Um, situation and how you negotiated those terms or, and some counsel if you have any. Uh, yes, especially yeah, especially oriented um, towards be, be others. Yeah, to. Yeah. Um, so we, as Noah mentioned last year, we were on leased land. Um, we really, really wanted when we started looking for a place to grow. We really wanted to find a creative arrangement that didn't necessarily mean a, a mortgage or a, um, ownership. So we we uh, entered kind of an agreement. It was partially lease, partially sort of a trade of investments in the property and the land. And we worked, honestly, with a wonderful individual um, and excellent topsoil just outside of Missoula, Montana, um, wonderful growing soil. And we, and I'm kind of giving you, this is sort of backstory to how we ended up here. Um, we put uh, so much into that space, um, both monetary investments. We learned how to build a good, solid deer fence there, and we never wanted to leave that deer fence. I tell you, it was not easy to put up. <laughs> um, but we realized, you know, there's a human component to any land arrangement. Um, even if you're, you know, working a family of, on family land, there's there's dynamics between people, and there's it's very important to have all of the the goals and visions spelled out and and of course those change for people as time goes by and and as people change so for us um for a whole host of reasons from neighborhood regulations and county building restrictions to some fundamental differences in in the vision between us and that landowner it really didn't work for us to stay there and frankly it was heartbreaking um we had really gotten to know neighbors. We had um, built up a good potential for a 15 to 20 family CSA and kind of built some business plans on uh, on that location. But when it became obvious that it, it really wasn't going to work for the long term, uh, we started looking around for all of our other options. And we <laughs> we kind of went on a a farm advice tour last fall. We started introducing ourselves to all the local farmers um, expanding our our search uh, into a larger radius outside of Missoula that was kind of our hometown. And we, um, we just shared our whole story with everyone we thought might have a good connection or some advice for us. And we started also looking for ways that we could basically have longer-term security on whatever land we ended up on. And we, um, in that process... Um, a local mentor who works with a, a local ag not-for-profit and works with students and also runs a family farm, basically connected us with someone he knew of through that organization who was 
was interested in taking money that she had inherited out of the stock market and putting it into something more useful still as an investment, but something local, um, something that promoted a sustainable business. And uh, she had been considering purchasing an existing farm and leasing it to, to young farmers or something along those lines. She was looking to support local agriculture. And we basically were just kind of at the right place at the right time, but also putting our needs out there very clearly to anyone who might be able to help. And so what we worked out with um, that individual was actually essentially that we, we involved her in the process of our search for a place to buy within a, a certain price range. Um, and we, so we actually looked at a number of uh, farms or, or, well, none of them were really farms yet, but pieces of land, some bare, some with houses, some, all kinds of different um, states of disrepair. Some with barns, some with uh, neglected trailer homes. Um, and and we, we found this place eventually just outside of Hamilton, Montana, that really suited our needs, especially of being um, a large enough patch to work with, decent soil, although it needs some work, and being close to a town center so that our vision of involving community, having UPIC, um, having farm events really worked. And what we arranged, just to, to give people some nuts and bolts structure if they're thinking about anything similar, um, and it varies by state, by state real estate laws, but in Montana, the best arrangement for us was something called a contract for deed, which is essentially kind of a form of owner financing, but basically that individual, um, she, she kind of is our bank. We have the title of the land, but she has a lien on it until um, it's paid off. Uh, it's, all of the payments um, go through a escrow company, a, a third party, and what's nice is that it's a legal structure where everything is very clear. Um, you know, if we don't make our payments, it's all spelled out what her recourse is, and it's uh, it's a very straightforward legal procedure. Um, you know, if she were to want to sell her portion of the investment to a bank or something else, it's clear that our terms stay the same and how that works. And having engaged in some other, you know, very creative alternative lease arrangements where we thought we had everything spelled out um, and yet things changed. Uh, it was, it's actually strangely reassuring for us to have this very clear-cut um, documented financing uh, structure. Hallelujah. We all know where we stand. Our rights are. And it's transparent and it doesn't shake around based on whoever's feeling however. Right, right. That's so great. Thanks. Yeah, it's altogether a, a different issue than staying on your land. And in, in our search for farmers, um, we've really grown our, our network. Um, so, you know, one creative thing that we're doing here is we remodeled the main farmhouse, but we're actually um, in a month or so getting ready to move out of that onto the land um, in order to um, help continue to uh, fund our farm and the infrastructure and really to build our soil. Um, so um, it's an altogether different challenge how to make that payment, and, you know, we're working on some creative ways to do that. 
but um, having land is, is a real key step that we saw we needed to, to get to farm. Well, I'd love to be able to write a little profile of your experience, if you'll let me, um, on mm-hmm. Agrarian Trust. And I'm really thankful for the work you guys put into that and making a, a, per, taking a proactive approach um, and, and not, not taking too long to learn, not taking too long to learn the lesson so you don't get burnt, burnt out, but just make a, uh, make a good plan and stick with it. So we have less than a minute left, but I want to make sure to let you call out if there's any upcoming events or organizations that you recommend for people who are Montana-bound or um, that really supported your process. Um, uh, absolutely, and thanks for the out. opportunity. Um, we are. Um, I'm headed off soon to do a, to do a project with some other farmers and to think about the rest of our work. So we are hiring an intern for the month of July. Um, so um, we have a stipend for that and uh, housing. Um, it's a chance to work, but also to learn. Um, and people can email us at um, at noah at forestvoices.org, or they can just uh, get on our website, forestvoices.org is the website. Wow, a low commitment, a low low time commitment, high summer in Montana, dream job. <laughs> That's may the right. mothers yep. tell their may the mothers tell their college kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please, uh, absolutely. <laughs> or even someone maybe with a little experience would be great too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll, well, we'll, thanks. We'll, we'll try and get the word out. Thanks, and we're grateful for your work. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for being on. I just want to give a tiny little call out for the really awesome event we had uh, day before yesterday in the Grange Hall in Tranquility Grange in Lincolnville, Maine. We had a bunch of folks. We had 85 people show up for our main sale freight uh, not symposium, but panel and potluck and discussion, what's possible here on the coast of Maine in terms of moving our products within the regional economy using appropriate technology. Um, if you want to know more, please get in touch. Um, the greenhorn.net slash Maine sale freight is the catch-all page. Um, you can email me, severin at the greenhorns.net, to join the mailing list to be in touch the next um, phase of this project will ensue in late summer. So um, let's talk. Thank you all for being there and for listening and for working and for making it happen all together and individually. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.